Welcome to The Faithful Forebearers, a podcast about faithful Christian men and women throughout history. Episode 17, St. Patrick. Welcome back. So this whole podcast started with our friend Gregory the Great, born in 540. From him, we went to the missionaries he sent to England, and then the missionaries that the English sent to Germany, and then all sorts of other places. Well, today we're going to jump back before all of that, about a hundred years before Gregory, and about a thousand years before Jean Gerson of our last episode. We are going to learn about another country that was also passionate about sending missionaries as far as they could. I'm talking about the small country of Ireland. So as I mentioned earlier on the show, I took a trip to Ireland in July, and it was pretty fantastic. The people were really friendly, the countryside was beautiful, the food was great, and their pints have four more ounces than our U.S. pints. But I was told Guinness would taste better over there than in the U.S., but I thought it tasted the same. Good, but the same. While I was there in Ireland, I also realized it has a very wonderful story tied up with the history of the church. And while it might be a small island on the edge of European civilization, its influence outweighs its size. So I want to return back to the beginning, when Christianity was first brought to Ireland. We'll take two or three episodes to tell the story of Irish Christianity through several different forebearers. We will begin with the most famous forebearer of all Irish Christianity. That, of course, is St. Patrick himself. But before we get there, let's learn a little bit about pre-Christian Ireland. Ireland, unlike England, was never conquered by Rome, so it was never part of the Roman Empire. That didn't mean the Romans didn't know about it, not at all. The Roman name for Ireland was Hibernia, and the Mediterranean world had known about Ireland ever since a Greek explorer named Pythias of Massilia had written about it in 324 BC. But it was still on the edge of the known world, and many legends grew up around Ireland. For instance, one Greek historian believed that Ireland was a frozen, snow-swept land. Actually, Hibernia, remember that's the Roman name, means winter land. And this same Greek historian believed that the natives ate their fathers and married their sisters. Of course, he'd never actually been, and probably had never even talked to anyone who'd actually been. But somehow it was already known that Ireland did not have any snakes. So, no, that will not be part of our story with Patrick. Now, if you remember from episode 2, Rome was only barely able to control England. Well, Ireland would have been even further of a stretch. So a Roman invasion of Ireland never happened. But there was trade between the two, and Roman coins have been found in ancient Irish settlements. Rome had a cultural and social influence on Ireland as well. And in the 300s, when Christianity became legal in the Roman Empire, it appears that Christianity did spread at least a little bit from England and Wales to Ireland. In the late 300s AD, the Roman Empire was beginning to collapse. In episode 2, we discussed how England was one of the first provinces Rome gave up on. It just did not have the energy or resources to protect such a faraway island. 
And so the Roman Britons began to fall prey to many of the dangers in the 4th and 5th centuries. Invaders and raiding parties began to attack the island. Those raiders included Picts from Scotland, Saxons and Angles from North Germany, and lastly, and most importantly for our story, the Irish. So Patrick was born just before all this bad stuff started happening to Roman Britain. Patrick was born in Britain, not in Ireland like many people assume, in a town called Banaventa Bernaei, two wealthy and noble parents. In fact, Patrick's name means one of the patrician class. His father's name was Calpornius. Calpornius was a deacon in the church and a high-ranking official in the Roman government of the town. Patrick's grandfather, Potitus, was a priest. This is before priests were not allowed to marry and have children, by the way. So, being a wealthy and well-connected family, Patrick probably had a pretty good education as a child. He would have learned the basics that any young Roman noble would have. And since he was the son of a deacon... It's likely he also got a good religious education as well. But by his own admission, he did not have a heart for it then. Apparently, even though Patrick came from a religious family, the faith did not stick to him as a kid. He was probably the typical rich snotty kid who did whatever he pleased. Patrick himself wrote about those years, saying, At that time I had no real knowledge of God. We ignored the warnings of our priests who pleaded with us again and again to be mindful of our eternal souls. Patrick admits that at this age, he was basically an atheist. But then disaster struck for Patrick and his whole family. Sometime around 405 AD, just before Patrick's 16th birthday, the troubles of the late Roman world came to Patrick's home. For the last several decades, Irish raiders had been sporadically attacking the coasts, and this time they came for Patrick's hometown. From Patrick's writing, we know some of his family survived this attack, but most likely others in his family were also killed or captured in this same incident. Patrick mentions thousands of others being hauled away into captivity with him. In one day, probably one hour, Patrick went from rich young noble with a bright future and the world at his fingertips, to a captured slave with absolutely nothing and no future. Now, slavery was still common in the Roman world, and Patrick's family probably was rich enough to afford their own slaves. And slavery in ancient Rome was no easy thing, but slavery in ancient Ireland made Roman slavery seem humane by comparison. Roman slaves at least often had a chance to buy their own freedom, or the freedom of their children. Irish slaves had no rights at all. And sometimes, slaves were even used as a form of currency. For instance, the exchange rate in ancient Ireland was roughly one slave to three cows. This must have been a terrifying trip for Patrick, though it probably didn't take all that long. To cross the channel between Ireland and Britain is only about a day. But here he was going off to a land of terrible legends of cannibals and frozen tundra. And Ireland certainly was a harsh place, but thankfully it wasn't as bad as some of the legends said. Patrick was probably brought to the northwest corner of Ireland, in County Mayo, near County Sligo. We don't know this for sure, and many places in Ireland like to claim that they were where Patrick stayed, but this area seems to fit the evidence best. 
Patrick was sold to a tribe there, and ended up with the job of taking care of the sheep. Now that doesn't sound so bad, and in the great scheme of things, it could have been a lot worse. Tending sheep meant that he got to spend a lot of time alone. But sheep tending was boring, and Patrick could have been bought by a family to tend their sheep because their own kids didn't want to do it themselves. And there was actually a hierarchy of animal tending in Ireland, and sheep were on the bottom. Pigs were better than sheep, but the best of all was cattle. In fact, in ancient Ireland, if you had really made it, you were called a cattleman. So basically, cowboys were in in ancient Ireland. Patrick worked as a shepherd, and the time greatly changed him. It certainly humbled him, and it brought him back to his faith in God. Patrick says he started praying regularly then, as much as 100 times a day. Since he didn't have any scripture, one wonders how much his earlier religious education he was able to recall. Perhaps he had been forced to memorize some scripture and would recite this, or sing old hymns he knew. So see, kids, that's why memorizing your Bible verses is important. He also learned the Irish language, and this would be incredibly useful later, when he would return as a missionary. As Patrick's faith grew, he did earn some scorn from the local Irish he worked with, who would call him Holy Boy, probably after hearing him pray for the first 50 times in a day, or hearing him sing the same song for the 80th time. Patrick says of this time himself, God used the time to shape and mold me into something better. He made me into what I am now, and very different from what I once was. Someone who can care about others and work to help them. For six years, Patrick worked through snow, frost, and rain, and he worked hard. But Patrick started feeling restless. One night, Patrick heard these words in a dream. You have fasted well. Soon you will be going home. Not long after that, he heard the same voice again. Behold, your ship is ready. So Patrick probably grabbed all the food he could, and at the right opportunity, he slipped away. One of the reasons we think Patrick was in Northwest Ireland during this time is first because he speaks of snow and frost. Northwest Ireland is the coldest region in the country. The second is because he says he had to travel 200 miles to find the right port. Now, Ireland is only 170 miles wide at its widest. So why did he travel so far? Well, it's probably because he had to travel to a port that would send ships to Britain, which would be on the East Coast. There were no ports in the Northwest which would take him where he wanted to go. So Patrick had to trek across the whole country. This trip would have been very hard for Patrick. As a runaway slave, he had no rights whatsoever. And though he could speak Irish, his accent would probably still give him away to any Irish that found him. And any that did would likely be very happy to sell him off for some cows. He could not ask anyone for help. So after running for many weeks, and likely living as best as he could off the land, he finally made it to the right port. When he arrived, he saw a ship about to depart. As he hid in the bushes, he saw the captain speaking to his crew. So Patrick plucked up his courage, stepped out of the bushes, and went straight for the captain. And he tried the strategy tried by many young men throughout history. And he was hoping to work in exchange for passage. The captain saw Patrick and probably sized up the situation immediately. 
This was a runaway slave. The captain told him bluntly, Forget about it. There's no way you're going with us. Very likely, this captain did not want to get involved with the affairs of a runaway slave. Patrick was dumbstruck. He'd just traveled 200 miles, and he just trusted the words that he'd heard. He apparently walked away very much saddened and said a prayer. But before he had finished the prayer, he heard a sailor calling him back. Apparently, the captain had changed his mind. Now, whether out of need or compassion, we don't know. But the sailors told him, make a pact of friendship with us, and you can be one of us. Now, Patrick does make a very funny side note here in his own writings that one of the pagan customs of friendship in that day was to, and I quote, suck on their breasts. Patrick explicitly says he did not do this because even back then, that was super weird. But in general, things were looking up for Patrick. The ship was headed to Britain with a cargo of, surprisingly, dogs. Irish dogs were prized in the ancient world, even in Greece and Rome. And so, this group and their dogs disembarked in southern England. But somehow, they got lost. And they wandered for 28 days. The men and the dogs were starving. So probably after hearing Patrick sing or pray as often as he did, the captain said to him, Well, Christian, what are you going to do? You say that this God of yours is so great and powerful. Why don't you pray to him for us? Patrick replied, Just turn with your whole heart to the Lord my God, because nothing is impossible for him. Today he's going to send food right in your path, plenty to fill your bellies because his abundance is everywhere. Almost right then, the group saw a huge herd of pigs, and the starving men went crazy, and for the next two days, they ate their fill of pork chops. Patrick also speaks of a spiritual attack that same night, and he said it was something he would never forget. He awoke in the middle of the night, and he could not move his body at all. He felt like a great rock was pinning him down. He doesn't say how long he was like this, but for some reason the name Elijah came to him, and he shouted out, Elijah, Elijah. Just then the sun rose, and Patrick says of the event, As the rays of the sun touched my body, immediately all the weight and pain were lifted away. I believe that it was Christ the Lord who rescued me that night, and that it was his spirit which cried out for my sake. Indeed, I hope the same thing happens to me on the day of my judgment. After several other small adventures, Patrick finally returned home. And this must have been a huge shock and a relief for his whole family. People didn't just come back from slavery in Ireland. Most assumed he was dead or that they simply would never see him again. His parents were overjoyed. Life could return to normal. Patrick could take his place in the family once again and happily remain in his town for the rest of his life. But of course, that was not to be. After a little while, Patrick had a dream again. In his dream, a man named Victoricus came to him with letters. Patrick recalls the dream, saying, He gave me one of the letters, and I saw that the first words were, The Voice of the Irish. When I began to read this letter, all of a sudden I heard voices of those Irish who live in the woods near Foklet, near the Western Sea. 
They called out to me with a single voice. We beg you, holy boy, come here and walk with us. I felt my heart breaking and was not able to read any more. So I woke up. Patrick had two more dreams, one hearing prayers in a beautiful language he could not understand, and then another dream as if someone was praying inside of him. When he awoke, he remembered the words of Paul in Romans. The Spirit helps us when we don't know how to pray or what we ought to pray for. So Patrick made up his mind. He was going to become a priest, and he would head back to Ireland, to the very people who had enslaved him. Patrick's family was not happy about the idea. They finally had their son back. The last thing they wanted was for him to leave again. But it probably was a while before Patrick actually did. First, he needed to train as a deacon and then as a priest. At this time, the minimum age for a priest was 30. And since there were no official seminaries yet, Patrick would have trained under a bishop in the area. As a deacon, Patrick would have learned about church administration and day-to-day affairs. It's even possible that Patrick traveled to Gaul, that's modern-day France, to study to become a priest. But Patrick would never be much of a theologian, at least not an academic theologian. His focus would be preaching simply and straightforwardly to the Irish. But he was always a little bit self-conscious about his lack of schooling and how simple his knowledge of Latin was. This is especially true since his time as a slave had put him three years behind others of his own age. In general, we don't know too much about the church or its organization in Britain in the early 400s. We don't know much about Patrick's peers and companions. There certainly was a large population of Christians in Roman Britain. Remember, this is before the events of episode 2, when the non-Christian Saxons and Angles would take over modern-day England. There was one other very famous British Christian at this point in history, but he was an infamous heretic. His name was Pelagius, and Pelagius believed and taught that humans could reach perfection in this life. Pelagius and his followers rejected the idea of original sin, and that theoretically all people could live perfectly sinless lives. This caused a major controversy in the church. Major figures at the time, like Jerome and Augustine of Hippo, wrote quite a lot arguing against Pelagianism. Augustine fought especially hard showing that everyone's sin was equally damning in God's eyes and that each person needs grace as much as anyone else. Pelagius' ideas were officially rejected by the church in 418. Pelagius was not much older than Patrick, and one wonders if there was any overlap or contact. Most likely they at least knew some of the same people. But Patrick shows no signs of being interested in Pelagius' ideas. It's likely that Patrick would have outright rejected them, as he always emphasizes God's grace, and especially his own desperate need for it. But Patrick's passion was not theological debates. His focus was on evangelizing that untamed island. Patrick was not the first missionary to Ireland. In fact, he was not even the first bishop of Ireland. That title belongs to a man named Palladius. Palladius was a hard-working man from Italy. He had traveled from Italy to Gaul fighting the Pelagian heresy, and then he had moved on to Britain. After his successful work in these places, the Pope, named Celestine, had appointed him to be the first bishop of Ireland in 431 AD. 
The fact that Palladius was named bishop means that there was already a decent amount of Christians in Ireland. For an area to have a bishop, believers had to already be there, and they had to be the ones that requested a leader. It's very possible that Palladius chose Patrick to be one of his assistants in this endeavor, and Patrick would have been the perfect helper. Patrick knew the languages, the land, and the customs, and now he had solid training, and certainly great passion. But we don't know much more about Palladius than this. He kind of disappears after being made bishop in Ireland. Many scholars think that future Irish, who were big fans of Patrick, downplayed Palladius' work so they could magnify Patrick's. So sadly, Palladius has been pushed to the side of history and, in general, forgotten. There were also several other missionaries working during this same period. Saints Alba, Declan, Ibar, and Kieran. Many of the stories we have about them are pretty fantastic. For instance, Alba was raised by a wolf. There is even a story of all these missionaries meeting together and almost coming to blows because Patrick was a foreigner. But an angel steps in to bring back the peace. What truth is in these stories we really don't know. But whether Patrick was the first or the 15th bishop of Ireland really doesn't matter. Because he did become bishop, and he certainly was a good one, and would become one of the most influential of them all. His knowledge, along with his boldness, his eye for the practical, and a good dose of providence, made his efforts succeed slowly, but steadily. It was slowed in part because there was nothing even close to unity in Ireland at this time. Ireland had hundreds of kings, but those kings were much more like Native American chieftains than European monarchs. Their influence was over their tribe, and not much else. This meant that Patrick was traveling between many tribes and trying to nurture the small congregations in all of them. It was not easy, and Patrick does mention offhandedly that he was captured into slavery for a while again. He also sometimes had to bribe Irish kings to let him pass through or to preach his message in their kingdom. After several years of this, all his effort and trouble began to pay off. Often, Patrick's first converts in an area were women. This isn't too surprising, since in the Roman world, women were also some of the first to convert to Christianity. Christianity offered something that was pretty unknown at the time. The idea that people, no matter the race, sex, or age, were equal in the eyes of God. Some people in modern times have had the idea that in pre-Christian Ireland, society was an egalitarian paradise. But there's simply no evidence of that. Instead, Irish law put women at the same level as children, slaves, and the insane. Patrick's message would have been radical to them. The same idea of equality before God was very appealing to slaves, and many slaves converted as well. We get a glimpse of what Patrick would have taught them from a creed that Patrick writes in one of his letters. It goes like this. There is no other God. There never was, and there never will be. God our Father was not born, nor did he have any beginning. God himself is the beginning of all things, the very one who holds all things together, as we have been taught. And we proclaim that Jesus Christ is his Son, who has been with God in spirit always from the beginning of time and before the creation of the world. 
though in a way we cannot put into words. Through him everything in the universe was created, both what we see and what is invisible. He was born as a human being, and he conquered death, rising into the heavens to be with God. And God gave him power greater than any creature of the heavens or on earth or under the earth, so that someday everyone will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord and God. We believe in him, and we wait for him to return very soon. He will be the judge of the living and the dead, rewarding every person according to their actions. And God has generously poured out his Holy Spirit as a gift and token of immortality. This Spirit makes all faithful believers into children of God and brothers and sisters of Christ. This we proclaim. We worship one God in three parts by the sacred nature of the Trinity. Patrick's chief rivals in Ireland would have been Druids. Druids were basically shaman or witch doctors. They were respected and feared even by the most powerful warrior or king in Ireland. Treaties would be ratified in their presence, and they would be summoned to tell the future, usually with sacrifices, sometimes human ones. They believed in reincarnation and worshipped a pantheon of gods, especially spirits of nature. Fun fact for any of you fans of the video game Legend of Zelda, one of the gods they worshipped was the horse goddess Epona, which apparently was very popular with Roman cavalrymen as well. But the Druids would not have been happy with Patrick teaching this new radical religion in their lands, because if and when Christianity was adopted, all their influence would be lost. And over the next several centuries, Christians and Druids would be at odds with each other. Poor Patrick did not only have the Druids working against him, though. He also had problems with his home in Britain. There were many there who didn't support his mission to the Irish, some likely because they were no fans of the Irish. After all, how many others had family members killed by Irish raids as well? There was a bit of a scandal, too. Patrick, when he was young and studying to become a deacon, had confessed some sin he had committed to a close friend. We don't know what the sin was, but he committed it when he was 15 years old. Patrick says that the event all happened within one hour. People have speculated if it was idolatry, murder, adultery, but nobody knows. After Patrick had been in Ireland for many years, this sin became known. This brought all sorts of grief to Patrick. He was also crushed that his friend had betrayed his confession. But Patrick received another dream that encouraged him to carry on. Patrick describes his frustration with the church back in Britain with this statement. I came to Ireland to preach the good news and to suffer abuse from unbelievers, and, it seems, to have my mission shamefully criticized. Most of what we know about Patrick actually comes from that letter he wrote, telling his whole story and defending the mission work he'd undertaken up to that point. Patrick closes his letter with these words. I would write these words of my defense again and again if I could. I declare in truth and with joy in my heart, before God and his holy angel, that I have never had any motive in my work except preaching the good news and its promises. There is only one reason I returned here to Ireland, a place I barely escaped alive. My final prayer is that all of you who believe in God and respect him, whosoever you may be who read this letter, 
that Patrick, the unlearned sinner, wrote from Ireland, that none of you will ever say that I, in my ignorance, did anything for God. You must understand, because it is true, it was all a gift of God. And this is my confession before I die. No one really knows what happened to Patrick after he wrote this letter. The dates of his death range from 460 A.D. to 490. We don't know if he died peacefully or violently. The day of remembrance, March 17th, is a guess. And so is his official burial site in Down Patrick. But the legend of Patrick would steadily grow. While all Ireland was not instantly brought to faith after Patrick's work, it did grow and grow. Paganism and Druids would be around for another 200 years, but Christianity slowly and surely became the dominant faith. We will look at that story more next episode, when we learn about several others who will pick up where Patrick left off in Ireland. But very soon after Patrick, Ireland would be sending missionaries of their own instead of receiving them. So the historical Patrick may not have been the snake-driving, whole-island-converting miracle man that sometimes he's portrayed to be, but he certainly laid a great foundation. An old Latin hymn several decades after Patrick says this, Listen, everyone, all you who love God, to the holy qualities of that blessed man of Christ, Patrick the Bishop. He is like the holy angels in his wonderful ways and equal to the apostles because of his perfect life. Now, if Patrick ever heard that himself, I think he would remind all its hearers that he was far from perfect. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I had a great time learning about Patrick, and it certainly helps that Patrick had quite an adventure of a life. I'm hoping to do two more episodes on Ireland, and then we will head to Spain. Also, I finished recording the sermon for the Revised Thoughts podcast. The episode that I'm doing for them, the one on Jean Gerson, will be coming out in October, so I'll be sure to let you know when it does. It was a fascinating study for me, especially after learning so much about Gerson. As I'm sure you agree, it's always best to hear about each one of these people in their own words. Also, I just want to thank all of you who have contacted me with your encouragements. It really helps keep me going at this, and I always like hearing from all my listeners. Please keep rating and reviewing me on iTunes and Stitcher. That helps me out a lot, especially those reviews. Please, please, please write me a little nice note. It would be awesome. And as always, please tell a friend. I'm Eric Clausen, and thanks for listening.